Hello everyone, welcome to The Full Life. We're so excited uh, to have you with us again today. We're also very, very pumped up, at least I am, about this show today, as we'll be looking at the life and witness of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We'll be talking with Steve, who um, for us, we know very well, but you guys may not know as well because he works behind the scenes and helps us look good, or at least he tries his best to help us look good. Um, but this is a play that he's in looking at the life and witness of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is one of my personal favorites, um, person I've learned a lot from. He has two books, Life Together and The Cost of Discipleship, which I've always enjoyed because they remind us that we're meant to do this life together. They remind us that God calls us to be disciples of Jesus, yes, but also disciples who make disciples. And the best way to do that is to do life together. Um, another aspect of Bonhoeffer's life that I've grown to really appreciate was his role here in the United States, um, attending Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, and how he was able to see what it's like to be a minority group that's persecuted by the government, um, a minority group that maybe is taken advantage of, and, and, and how in spite of all of that, he's able to see how it didn't erode faith. And I think that had a direct fruit and direct bearing when he goes back to Nazi Germany and is able to not only fight for the least of these, but fight in the name of Jesus. So hopefully you enjoyed the show. I think it's gonna be great. And I'm so glad you're with us again. So yeah, enjoy. Steve, come on out and join us from behind the shadows. Hey guys. There he is. Hi, hey. <laughs> how you doing? Our very own Steve is also a an actor, and he was recently involved in a production uh, about Diedrich Bonifer. Mm -hmm. And he is going to be in an encore presentation of that play. Uh, and I'll let you talk about the circumstances of how you got involved and what's going on with this next production. And we'll start there. Steve, tell us how you got involved in that. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, what's really fascinating to me is the fact that when it comes to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, about two months ago, I had no idea who this person was. Um, I had been searching through Facebook and a friend of mine was talking about how they were going to be working on a new production. And they're like, does anybody I know speak German? And I was just like, well, I took some German dialect courses and, and some of the uh, uh, what was it? Not just German dialect, but uh, uh, pronunciation as a part of my vocal performance major. Uh, when I was in college, I was like, I know some pronunciation, if that's what you need. And he's like, great. Um, want to be the lead? <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, want to be the lead in my play? I'm working on a play. And it was, it was really fascinating. I mean, you want to talk about a man a moment uh, like we like to on this show. I mean, that was that was huge for me because... You know, there are many times in my life where I find myself in my heart just kind of uh, letting out there certain things. And one of the things that had been on my heart at that time was, you know, I wish there was like a, a play of the month club or something like that, because I'm kind of starved for some for some really good production, something to read, some, some really good material. Mm -hmm. And little did I know, boom, literally weeks after that happened, the beams are creaking, fell into my lap, and I learned about Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Tell us about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, fascinatingly enough, uh, he, I had no idea that this gentleman even existed. Right. Uh, and it's so funny because, you know, looking at the way his name is, was pronounced in German, I would ask people like that I knew. I mean, my parents were both theology teachers, and I'd be like, do you guys know Dietrich Bonhoeffer? 
<laughs> and they're like, who? Dietrich, he's a Lutheran pastor. Uh, oh, Bonhoeffer? Yeah. Jenny and I. Yeah, they said, I think I think he had this concept, cheap grace. Uh, I think he was in a concentration camp. <laughs> so that pretty much started the uh, tip of the iceberg of my studies with uh, this Lutheran pastor who uh, actually he, he started out uh, with this fellowship in America. He was, he was in New York city. Uh, and in that point in time, he actually learned about the plight of the African-American community in our time around world war two and the great depression. And that had such a huge impact on him he ended up going back to Germany, recognizing the heat that was coming from the Third Reich and uh, saw where things were moving. And, uh, you know, he became a proponent uh, to hopefully save the German church, because at that point uh, they were, you know, uh, Hitler was working on making the church just this uh, a, a very unchristian sort of thing, and mostly to to kind of uh, convert it to to work towards his means in less mm -hmm. of a of a Christian mm -hmm. situation, and so Dietrich Bonhoeffer was was really really struggling with how to maintain a truly Christian life uh, for the German people and and to teach and preach uh, the word of Jesus uh, while not also rubbing up against the Third Reich. But in the end, he ended up having to, you know, speak out against Hitler and work against Hitler mm -hmm. in such a way that wound him up in a concentration camp. It was really fascinating to, to learn about him because I think that concept of, you know, making sure that Jesus stays at the center of mm -hmm. your your yeah. life yeah. and your how you navigate the policy and everything going on around you, politics or otherwise, is really a concept that is very relevant, I have to say. I think that's relevant today. I think a lot of people are going through that and grappling through that in various ways. Truly, um, I couldn't, I, I, when I was reading The Beams Are Creaking, I couldn't tell you just like the way that it, it was really... Really speaking to the zeitgeist right now. And I was just like, this is crazy. But at the same time, like we, we did the show uh, and, you know, at, after the show had finished, it, it was a, a Zoom production, like most things are these days in our uh, pandemic life. Um, and, you know, we were just kind of coming down from the from the performance. And all of a sudden the producer, uh, John Hatterline, his brother Don directed it. The producer was like, oh, yeah, uh, uh, Doug Anderson, the writer, uh want your phone number, Steve. And I'm like, huh? Okay. <laughs> so I'm like, sure, go ahead. And next thing I knew, I, I got a call from Doug Anderson who said watching our production had kind of lit a fire under him. And within 24 hours, he emailed me again and said, look, I can't stop thinking about it. I feel like this is important. I would like you to please uh, play the role again uh, with my company here in Vermont. And it was just an absolute honor to to receive that request and so that's what we're working on now wow i can't wait to see you in this thank you thank so excited you about that. Well, he sort of reminds me of him anyways like when he told us he was going to play i'm like oh you actually sort of look like him you know that's right that's right you would ask me about uh you'd ask me about my glasses right yeah. like, oh okay and i just uh actually i have them right here hold on yeah put on my stage glasses and you just went crazy i was just like hello Hi. i so, know 
Oh my god. Wow. So I'll be shaving this off and whatnot, but it was now you have to keep that on the rest of the <laughs> So Carolyn and Jenny, what I'll start with Carolyn. What have what was your experiences with Bonnever before? Well, you, you know, know my this? husband, and he just brought me in with the book was that he read of his. I mean, reading his book, it was the cost of discipleship. Do you uh -huh. remember that book? Yes. And yes. You know, it just, it radically changed my husband because, and I, I love how you're saying it sort of um, mirrors a little bit of where we are today because he was trying to stand up in the midst of people who were, it wasn't so popular to believe the way that we believe. And, he, and I love, my husband brought me this quote, if I can give it to you just real quick, I'm going to have to put my glasses on so I can all actually, right, all right. I have to say, let me put my eyes on so I can see. <laughs> <laughs> He said, a call to be more faithful and radical obedience to Christ and a severe rebuke. I love this against wow. comfortable Christianity. Mm -hmm. Grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline and communion without confession. I mean, this guy was on fire for Jesus Christ and there was not a middle ground for him. He was sold out. And I think that's why he began to go and save the Jews. I mean, he, he got radically transformed by Christ. Well, yeah. Truly. You read my quote, girl. I know. I had it too. Right my husband. Well, I mean, it really is. I mean, because honestly, Joe, you probably know this. I teach this a lot. I, I, Cheap grace is something I address uh, a lot because exactly. it's come into the church and it has overtaken the church. And, you know, I even kind of partnered it with what we're dealing with in society today. And I said, listen, if we in the church have a prob problem with the lawlessness that we're seeing in the, our country, let's start with the church. Because we taught lawlessness. We said, oh, because of Jesus, there's no law. We're lawless. That's cheap grace. And so, I mean, that is probably why that resonated, but it obviously resonated with all of us that says something. I want to keep going. And you stopped actually a little bit yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. It goes on to say cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace, or did you read this? Grace without the cross. No, keep grace going. Without no, keep going. Jesus Christ living incarnate. And yeah. then I love this that he said, only he who believes is obedient and only he who is obedient believes. And that's a big thing, Joe. You also yeah. know this about us. You know, we use the term believers a lot for us in our faith because I think, yeah. you know, the, the term Christianity has lost some of its meaning. Yeah. Um, people say, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, I go, to, I go to church on Easter. I'm a Christian, you know. And because we have, as pastors, we have done a disservice to the church and preach this idea of cheap grace. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of permeated our culture. And so now we have this new understanding of our Christianity based on the culture. And there's so much of it. That's not even uh, the Bible anymore. It's, it's, there's so much of it. That's, uh, that's gotten out of line with the Bible. And I think Bonhoeffer was facing the same thing as he watched people venerate Hitler there are so many times he talks about the fact that when you put anybody in a place of an idol, I mean, okay. preachers were saying things like, we need to thank the Holy Spirit for bringing a man like Adolf Hitler to revive the church in our nation. They were literally making an idol out of this man. And I think that's such a key that he tapped into first. He didn't just tap into opinion. Well, I don't like this. This guy scares me. I don't like it. First thing he tapped into is, hey, wait a minute. There's something right now happening biblically 
Mm-hmm. That's wrong. I think he also shifted into something that was even more controversial when he talked about a religionless church mm-hmm. uh, or religionless Christianity. Sorry, because the fact was is that he felt that there were a lot of people who were just going through the motions, and this mm-hmm. Christian yeah. community, mm-hmm. even that he had done a uh, he, he had done his thesis on the Christian community and how we all truly, you know, need to come together. It is when we're all together in community that we are together in Christ. But he was finding that, I mean, there was still a lot of splitting within the church. And actually, at that point in time, there was a more bourgeois group of people who were spending time in church. And a lot of the working class, you know, they, they had other things they had to do to put food on the table. I mean, this, mm-hmm. these were hard times. But regardless, uh, finding that even just going through the motions, which he was seeing happening a lot in Germany, was was kind of going away from you know the the Christian teachings and and what it means to be an actual Christian. So he was wondering if maybe maybe religion isn't the way to it with all the separate religions and splits and factions that there are out there. So, gosh, it sounds like what we do here on the Full Life. I'm just <laughs> You've got that. <laughs> but you know, it was so powerful because he was doing it in a time where, and I feel like what you just said, Jenny, is exactly the truth. It's sort of where we are now because if we're not careful, Christianity is being watered down and taking on different religious type of things. And that's exactly what he was getting upset about. I mean, what she just said right there, where they can take scriptures and begin to think that it's okay to murder other people, to kill people that they are less than. There is nothing in the word of God mm-hmm. that said that there's nothing as a Christ follower that said that now maybe in their religious. And right. that's what he began to stand up against is he's like, we've got to bring it back to this word. Yeah. And when I read the word, this right. isn't what the word is saying. And I'm, yeah. I really believe that we're going to need some more people today. Yeah. to stand up just like him. I think we should really use him. I think it's yeah. so timely that you're doing this today, Steve. Those, really. those are some big shoes to fill, let me say, because yeah. one of the things that he talks about with discipleship is that the call of Jesus is the call to die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Try yeah. to take that on. Uh, it it's makes you feel that. like a teeny tiny person. And he... Yeah. I mean, he was just a mountain and it just, it blows my mind that two months ago, I had no idea that this mountain existed. Well, how many of us would leave what he left to come to America? All of a sudden he gets to be the lecturer. I mean, you know, that's putting him up on a pedestal. I mean, our flesh wouldn't, wouldn't we love that? You know, <laughs> we've escaped everything. And for him, the calling was so great. He said, I can't stay here. I've mm-hmm. got to go right. back. I've yeah. got to go back. And it's when you say die to our self, that's, mm-hmm. it's so against what this world is teaching us. Cause this world now is teaching us that it's all about my comfort. Yeah. It's all about me. It's all about my glory. I mean, even in, I'm going to say this, forgive me everyone out there, but even in our churches, we are making them superstars everywhere instead of, and, and I'm not knocking, I'm just saying that that's sort of the reality instead of making Jesus who we're leading people to, you know, it, it's, it's sort of dangerous. It is kind of dangerous. And, you know, it makes me think of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had to go and say to the people, no, God's not happy with this. And all the other prophets are coming around going, Jeremiah, 
You need to bring it down and just join the club, join the party, join what we're telling people right now. What you're saying is bumming people out. Stop with bumming people out. You got to <laughs> go along with what we're saying, you know, and, and honestly, that's kind of what she did with, you know, bon, as I still say Bonhoeffer, uh, excuse me, bon Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, uh, say what the Southern accent, people say Bonhoeffer. Um, <laughs> what she did was he had to rise up against what everyone else is saying. And I think we're coming to a time where there are those of us that are going to have to, as you guys were just saying, get out of our comfort zone mm -hmm. and go, you know what, this might not be popular to say. It's not popular to right. say that, you know, that Jesus actually, you know, told us to obey, uh, to, to obey law. His last words were, you know, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. We don't talk about that. That's not, that's not what Jesus said. It's not popular. It's not the cultural narrative that no, no, go along with what, what everyone wants to hear. But that's not what God is looking for. He's looking for Bonifers that are willing to say, listen, there's some stuff that's being, that's being taught that's anti-God, therefore it's anti-Christ. And how much am I loving you to ignore that information? So I, I love that you guys are doing this. I love we're having this conversation. Well, clearly we think the example of Bonifer is quite a strong one for all of us, even today. Um, and to, to promote Steve and his new production even further, we are so privileged to have with us today to welcome the writer of the play, The Beams Are Creaking. Please welcome from Vermont, Doug Anderson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Director, executive director of Tell everybody, thanks for having me. Thank you. <laughs> he is the artist, artistic director of what theater now, there in Vermont? Uh, Town Hall Theater. About 20 years ago, I um, stumbled on an old building right in the middle of downtown Middlebury that the town had forgotten had been a theater. It was an old vaudeville theater. And oh, I immediately awesome. and I said, we'll take it. There was no we, I didn't have a dime in my pocket, but 20 years later, it's a thriving performing arts center and it's a very exciting place to that's work. Awesome. Well, that's a story in itself outside of Bonhoeffer. I think we need to hear one day. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good tale. And it's a good tale of community. Um, everybody right. suddenly saw an idea for that building, which probably would have come down. And uh, it's, it's, I now know everybody in town and love everybody in town and they come to the theater. And um, I, I, I've got a theory that a town needs a big room. And we do, we do memorial services there. We do things with fifth graders there. We do grand opera there. We do anything the town wants to use that room for, it can use the room. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Doug, how did you first come to know of Bonhoeffer and, and tell us about writing the play and all the, and how you got to that? Yeah, um, again, it's a little embarrassing um, in that I wrote, it, I wrote this play over 40 years ago. Uh, as I, and as I say, do the math. Um, I was actually uh, 22 at the time I was in graduate school, but it, it started when I was an undergraduate at Kenyon in Ohio. And I was a theater kid doing lots and lots of plays, but religion always fascinated me. Also, I was fascinated by the connection between religion and theater. Uh, theater in the Western world begins in, in ancient Greece with, you know, Dionysian dances. Right. And um, so I, 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 somebody said to me my senior year, they said, you know, you take one more class and write a paper, we'll give you a religion major as well. I came across the book Letters and Papers from Prison. Right. And this is the book that uh, uh, Bonhoeffer wrote when he had been arrested and he was in Tegel Prison outside Berlin for some time. And, you know, I was thinking about this today knowing I was going to talk to you, but uh, he loved prison Be in the same way that uh, this might be an unpopular thing to say. I'm enjoying the pandemic has been a horrible, horrible thing, but it has brought me home. It right. has brought me sitting here. 
getting back to projects, writing again, not hustling every day to get up the next show. You know what I mean? And it has been a gift. It has been an amazing gift for me. And I'm doing a lot of writing now. Well, Bonhoeffer felt that same way, but of course, in a much more true mm-hmm. way. And he was in jail and he wrote a lovely book, which I really recommend, called Letters and Papers to Prison. The, the letters and papers had to be smuggled out of prison by a faithful guard. Otherwise, we would never, we would never know about this book. Um, and, um, and, you know, he wrote poetry and he did a lot of thinking. He was looking on, working on his major book in prison called Ethics, which he never really finished. But prior to going to prison, he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, which I think is the, it's the, um, it's the introductory book, I think, of a lot of people, for a lot of people. And, and you know, it's interesting. And so anyway, so I, 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 I was a theater major and I was getting a religion major and I started work on this play because uh, the story is astonishing. And if you're going to write a play, you better have an astonishing story to tell. And you've covered a lot of it. But even the details of it are, frankly, unbelievable. The ironies, as Steve knows, having done the play, are, are, are absolutely remarkable. And the sheer courage of this, this man. So it's, um, I, I used to think of myself as a playwright, and I've written several plays. This is the one that has survived. It has been performed all over the world. Um, a lot of colleges have done it. And, um, but it's, uh, the central role of Bonhoeffer, it's, it's a larger role than Hamlet. He is in every single scene. Um, I don't know why the young playwright did that, but he did. Um, and I have never seen a production. (laughs) I was never saw a production where I was really taken with the actors were actory and they didn't get Bonhoeffer. And I've, to tell you the honest truth, I've never seen a single performance of this play, and I've seen dozens of them, which I thought the, the guy, the leading guy, did it. And so the Chicago Area Company was doing it a few weeks ago, and they invited me to come watch it. And I'm like, all right, I'll watch, I'll watch 10 minutes of it, you know, on Zoom. And I watched the whole thing. And I watched the whole thing because of Steve. And it's a very true, that's a true story. And, and no one had quite captured the humility and the strength yeah. simultaneously. We had guys who were fighters and firebrands, and we had guys who were just sort of very, but they never really held my interest. And so I watched the whole thing really to my surprise. And um, minutes after I called up Steve and I said, you don't know me, uh, I wrote that play, um, I want you to do it for my theater. So it's wonderful for me to get back to it after all these years um, and, and sink into the play again. Well, tell us a little bit how you had to adapt it to come to Zoom, because I'm sure that's a little bit different than being on a live stage audience, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, it's really tricky. And it's it's something, of course, all performance organizations are facing now. You know, dance companies, opera companies, theater companies. Yes. How do we adapt to this new reality? And um, one of the nice things about this is uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this also is that my theater has to learn, <laughs> has to learn how to make this work. Um, and the great thing is that since Steve has done it already, and I guess Steve is like your tech guy. Is that true? I hope he was the star yeah, of the show. Pretty much. No. <laughs> He's not the I'm star? The guy this he time. is the star of the show. <laughs> if, it, if the tech doesn't work, no one's working. So he's the star. Right? So he is we, the star. We've been learning how to do it, and, and Steve is teaching about us how to do things like you can actually put the Bonhoeffer living room as a background in back of everybody. Or, or if they're at the Olympics, we can actually put the Olympics stand behind people 
I'm sure you've done this kind of thing when you've done Zoom. I'm technologically illiterate. I knew nothing about it. Um, finding ways that people can talk simultaneously while they're in, on different screens so you get that lively interplay that you get in the theater. Uh, it's been a learning curve and we're still learning. It's not going to be the same thing. There are certain things like the introduction of music and people singing simultaneously that Zoom just doesn't do very well. So we're making changes, but they won't be they won't be major ones. Basically, it will be it will be the experience that people have in the theater. One hopes that was really the most interesting part for me to think about. Doug was uh, how you decided to adapt this because uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life is is so vast, and um, even in the original adaptation of the play, that that's really what interests me. How you decided to take this man's huge life and and try to get all of the details and kind of compress them. I mean, obviously you weren't able to use everything and you had to take some artistic license, but I'm, I'm very fascinated to learn more about the process of, of how you uh, adapted the play. I immediately went to Eberhard Bethke's biography. Bethke himself was a fascinating character. He was a student of Bonhoeffer's and became his best friend, his dearest friend. And after Bonhoeffer's death, um, uh, Bethke wrote a very large biography, which has, it's just full of detail. And one just has to somehow simmer that down to, uh, to the basic plot points without losing uh, the theology and the point of view that he has, you know, one can just treat, treat. And so I did this in a, in, in a way that no playwriting class could have possibly taught. Um, the first act plays like a political thriller. And it, it, it has so many wonderful details. For example, he made an important speech, which he titled The Young, uh, Young People's New View of What a Fuhrer Should Be. And he gave this speech on the radio just after, after Hitler was elected. His family did not want him to give this speech. He insisted on doing it. It's a fabulous speech. And midway through, they pulled the plug on him. Wow. The government pulled the plug. He kept talking and music started playing over over him talking. He didn't even know till the end of the speech that no one heard half of it. So he went home, prints it up and sends it to everybody he knows. He's not going to be silenced. Now that kind of detail, you can't make that stuff up. No. You know, and it happens. So I'll give you one other thing to give just so. So he eventually gets involved with people, some in his own family who are involved in a plot to kill Hitler very nearly succeeded. And they wanted, they wanted Dietrich because he, because of his economic ecumenical work, he had contacts all over the globe. And you just can't do uh, an assassination or a push in house. I mean, you have to let, you have to make sure everybody else or a lot of other people know what you're doing and are going to be there to support you because you're going to need it. You're going to need that support. And so they, they um, sort of adopted Dietrich as a PR guy in a way, in a very loose way. And so, the day they're waiting for the phone call to hear Hitler is killed, and they're all nervous because they don't know if the plot's going to work. They're preparing for his father's birthday party, and a Nazi officer appears at the door. Wow. They panic. Man. He's looking for Bonhoeffer. Hmm. Dietrich says, I'm here. I'm Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, I'm not looking for you. I'm looking for your father. It's his birthday. The Hitler's giving him a medal. <laughs> What a scene. And so they all sit there yeah. waiting to see if the phone is going to ring while the Nazi agent is giving a speech to his father. His father was a famous psychoanalyst and educator. Right. And right. Hitler was giving him a medal. I mean, this is cinematic, is it not? Yes. Yeah. Stuff that, that a great screenwriter would invent. I didn't have to invent any of it. 
<laughs> it's, all, it's all there, and there's so many more stories. So, so the, it, the story lent itself to, to uh, dramatization, but also I was equally taken with the ideas, and you've touched on them. You've touched on them quite a lot. Um, but the idea of cheap grace, and let me in the other side of cheap grace, is what he called costly grace. Mm. Um, that it's going to cost you to stand up. It's going to cost you to go out and defend people who are helpless. Yeah. Um, and you, that is what we are called for, not just going to church and praying. We are called to well, read the Sermon on the Mount, for God's sakes. But I mean, <laughs> we, are, we are called to go out and it, you can believe something, but unless you put those beliefs into action, they are worth nothing, according to yeah. Jesus. So he actually works is dead. Exa exactly. And so he, he, he actually splits with Hitler's church which nobody would have dreamed of doing and set up his own seminary to teach people about essentially social justice and, and applying their belief. And then Hitler pulled the plug on the seminary as well. So he was clearly a marked man, but with each of these setbacks, he didn't stop. He kept writing, he kept speaking, he kept speaking out. And that's a, that's a great lesson for any of us in any generation, it seems to me. So I, I wrote the first act to be a kind of a political thriller. And it ends just when they're coming to pick him up and take him off to prison. Hmm. And then the second act is simply a two-man play. It's a very different tone. And it's Bonhoeffer in jail with the guard. And it's a true story. A guard. All the guards loved him in jail. They absolutely loved him. Hmm. And it's a kind of extended theological discussion between this theologian and just a guy. Just a guy. An old soldier, not particularly happy with Hitler shows up to clean the floor and they have an extended discussion about all kinds of issues. And so what I really want is kind of an, an introduction to, to Bonhoeffer's mind and his way of thinking, something that would make people then say, I've got to go buy that book. I've got to go explore this further. So he talks about cheap grace. He talks about religious, religionless Christianity. He also talks about this interesting concept of what he called the God of the gaps, that our religion now doesn't speak to strong independent people. It doesn't know what to say to strong, independent people. And so it sort of caters to people who are weak of spirit or weak in their financial situation. Or it, it sort of caters to the needy people in the world. But can we have a strong church that speaks to strong people? Um, and that's just one of many ideas that, that you go, clang. <laughs> you, you go, I know. What? The what? This, and and once, once you hear Bonhoeffer say it, you go, but of course. What's the lesson or the takeaway that you want the audience uh, to walk away with after watching this production? Obviously, you want them to be entertained and enjoy and learn. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. is there something specific you want them to walk well, with? You want to do enough to get that people say, this is a fascinating character. I'm fascinated by what he has to say. I've got to pursue this further. That's all, all really you can hope for. Well, what do you think, like, just in all the studying that you've, you've done at Bonhoeffer, what was the moment that changed him so drastically to become so the other way? I mean, that is a huge, I mean, when he says costly, mm -hmm. I mean, you and I think, oh, it's going to cost me a little bit of discomfort, you know? Mm -hmm. No, we're talking about his life, prison. I mean, it, it was everything for him. When he says costly, that has a deep meaning mm -hmm. to it. What do you think it was the moment for him that he was willing to make that jump, that leap to say all out, all out. Because I think that we need to hear that because I really believe in my heart, God is trying to knock on a lot of us as Christ followers for that same thing to say, mm -hmm. are you ready to make that commitment of all mm -hmm. out? Because mm -hmm. it's gonna cost you something. 
Right. I don't think it was a single epiphany. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it was a lifetime of stuff. Even when he was still connected with the church early on, he took a confirmation class, which they did in the Lutheran church, of the toughest kids in the poorest neighborhood. And he went into that neighborhood and mm -hmm. started preaching in that neighborhood. And his minister, his whoever was over him, never thought he would bring any of these kids around. He said, no, these are the kids who need us right now. Let's go there. In New York, he, he didn't think much of the Union Theological Seminary. Um, he, he didn't. He actually said at one point, there's no real theology here. He thought he was kind of light years away ahead of the Americans. But what he loved was getting into the black community, experiencing black life. He said at one time, he had never met people like black religious people who he felt religion colored their conversation. They spoke about God and Christ all the time, Jesus all the time. It was a way of life for them. It blew him away. Somebody could so fully, and their community was their church community, and their and the the church was, and and it was a very very strong um, um, emotional feeling. Again, I think time and again it's about Bonhoeffer um, getting into the community, and he talked about that a lot. You know, get you know get out of the church, get into the community, meet life as it exists, not as you read read about it in some rarefied tone. You know, and then deal with life as it exists, deal with injustice as wow. it exists. Not to besmirch, yeah. Not to besmirch the man, though. I I will say that one of the great things about him, from what I've been studying, uh, you don't see it much in the play, but he did struggle uh, with a lot of courageous issues. Uh, there were different uh, points in time where, you know, things were getting hot with uh, with the church in Germany, and so he actually took a fellowship in uh, London, if I remember correctly. And mm -hmm. uh, one of his prior uh, professors, it was uh, Karl Barth, right? Is that yes. who it was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, literally like wrote him a letter saying, hey, stop wussing out, come on back. This is your home. These are the people who need you. Your home is on fire. Mm -hmm. uh, another wow. example, uh, Sabina, his, uh, his twin sister married Gerhard, um, what was the last name? I forget, Doug. Uh, 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 give me a moment. I forget as well. It's it's, it's just a good point. Me, me too. But, uh, the fact remains that uh, Gerhardt's father had passed away, and Gerhardt was Jewish. Mm -hmm. And at one point, uh, Bonifer was actually asked to preach at Gerhardt's father's funeral, but because of the tension at the time, he wound up declining. And I believe he wrote a letter later to Gerhardt, literally just saying, look, I don't know why I was so afraid at that time, but I got to tell you, I, uh, I regret the decision that I've made and I feel very horrible. By see, that example is so good, Steve. You know, thank you for bringing that up because it's so because that struggle to really come to that authenticity and that strength in your faith is real for every single person. So yeah. I'm so glad that we have his example of, oh no, he's going back and saying, you know what, I did something yeah. wrong. You know, he's yeah. doing that, what he said in Chief, that Chief Grace quote, he's doing the repentance. He's mm -hmm. saying, I'm coming back and saying, I've learned that I can do better now. And I think that's everyone's story of in a story of faith. I think mm -hmm. we all need that. I, Brent, my brother-in-law does a, um, has a podcast and he had a guy on today named Robert Slierden. And Roberts, uh, he chronicles the great ministers, uh, great men of, of our faith. One of his um, things that he talks about is he never writes somebody, they, they asked him, 
are you going to write anything about like any living ministers or anybody that maybe just died recently? And he said, you know, I try to wait until when I write about anybody until they've been gone for several years, because I want to write a truthful story, including their shortcomings, because mm-hmm. every single leader has them. They have those times they, they look back on and go, I wish I hadn't done it like that. Yeah. And he said, some people might say, well, that's exposing their weakness. And he said, no, it's important to show yes. that they had weakness, that they made mistakes, that they went left when they should have gone right, that they went you know, down when they should have yeah. gone up. So I think we need those examples. I Absolutely. love, Steve, that you brought that up. I don't think that disparages him or anything. I think that no. just brings the humanity of him. I, I know myself. I've had times where I didn't want to associate with something because someone said, oh, you know, don't associate with that person. And I've had my guilt. Go, Why did I do that? Why did I do that? So I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Sometimes you need to know that people falter on on their rise to, to doing what they need to do, to following their heart, to following God, because it, it yeah. does take a lot of baby steps. And I mean, even in just studying the man himself, I, I hope I'm taking steps for myself in the right direction, whatever God willing has for me in my future and my call and my vocation, you know, and and I just, I'm just completely inspired by the man, completely inspired by this play that that Doug put together, and uh, I think he's really captured this just amazing spirit of the man too. And I, I hope that uh, that I'm doing it, I'm continuing to do it justice for him, and hopefully we can we can bring a lot of other viewers who decide to watch the play, uh, you know, to to the same sort of of understanding, and hopefully. Uh, coming back, you know, to the fold and moving forward with their faith. You know, Jenny, if I if I could just say one thing, because I, I think you both really nailed it. But an interesting detail: it always can, it seemed odd to me, but he actually not only left the church, he started his own sect. And how many people do that? You know, just, right. We've got to start our own sect, and he didn't call it the Church of God, and he didn't call it the Good News. He called it the Confessing Church. Mm-hmm. What right. a thing to name a sect! Wow. Uh, yeah. That that was the primary thing in his mind. When you read the word, you've got David, you've got Moses, you've got all of these people through the Bible that God lets us see their mistakes. Because I think we learn more sometimes from people's from mistakes than their successes. I mean, my son, he's in college right now and he's like, mom, I love when they show me what I did to mess up because I can learn from my mistake. Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like there is such a rawness when we're willing to come off of our own pedestals that we create. I mean, mm-hmm. I love Facebook and all that, but I call it fake book because it's not real. I think if we showed people's real lives, we're all broken. We all have weaknesses. We all have things that no offense every day is making me fall down before Christ and go, God, without you, I'm nothing. I have a question for Steve and Doug. How has your work with Bonifer in this play changed you? There are people that just give a specific example and such a great example. And you wonder whether or not you can rise to the challenge. But in researching him and in researching his faith, I feel like I can take, like I said earlier, those baby steps to moving forward in my faith. Um, I'm also learning that, you know, maybe history and where we are now are not too horribly different. Um, The fact that the gentleman like him actually saw what was happening in Germany because of the indications he found in the plight of the African-American community in the United States. And I think right now there's just so much suffering to be able to look at this and to recognize and to say to ourselves, hey, don't forget, 
the only way that we can uh, escape the past is by learning from the past. And mm -hmm. so that's one of the things that I've also taken away in my process. Doug, how has Bonifer changed you? You know, I came across Bonifer at a very young and fresh and uh, impressionable age. And, um, and I've carried with, you know, I've carried him with me and his, basically the ideas of, of becoming involved, becoming involved in your community, um, taking risks in your life, which I believe I've taken a few big ones in my life, um, and, and, and just staying connected and not withdrawing from the world. And I've had many other mentors in my life who, and, and many in my family, many of my teachers. You know, I, I always say, if I ever win an Academy Award, mind you, I will not. But <laughs> if, if I ever did, I will just thank all my teachers. Mm -hmm. And some of them I've never met, you know, and Bonhoeffer certainly is one of those. It will in fact be free. Wow. Uh, be absolutely there free. Oh, there might be a donate button on the page somewhere. I think there should be. Uh, um, but it is free and we wanted to make it free to as many people wow. as possible. And that's the one great thing about online performances. My theater seats 225, but the web seats 10,000, you know? That's yeah. right. Thank you so much again for joining us, Doug. And thank you and congratulations to our very own Steve for starring yes. in this thank production. I, I'm confident you will be changed by his example and maybe by Steve's performance too. <laughs> well, <laughs> just playing. And thank you both so much for joining us. We'll see you next time here on The Full thank Life. You. To watch the encore presentation of The Beams Are Creaking on Sunday, November 1st at 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific, simply visit www.townhalltheater.org and under the show's graphic, click Book Now to be taken to the broadcast page where you can set up your own reminder. It's free and well worth your time to find out more about Diedrich Bonifer.